2: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, Arts Editor here at the TLS, and Toby Lischdig, our Fiction and Politics Editor, is here with me today. Hi, Toby. How are you doing?
3: Hi, Lucy. Yeah, I'm OK, thanks. I have had COVID, along with lots of other people, but I, I seem to be on the mend now. So, uh, yeah, turning a corner.
2: You're being very, very brave. It's very good of you.
3: <laughs> it's always a delight to be on the podcast.
2: <laughs> and Alex, as we said last week, she's still gadding about, and we will quiz her. On her gadding about when she gets back. So we're here today. Uh, since you're the fiction editor, Toby, I feel I can pick your brains and say, what have you been reading recently? You're the person to ask.
3: Well, I, I suppose I am. Well, one of the things about being ill is that you do have some time to lie around in bed. And when you start feeling a little bit better, you know, the idea is that you can maybe read a bit. And actually, I did. I read a tremendous book sort of on my sick bed as I was recovering. It's mm. not a new book, I'm afraid. It is a reissue of a book by Eric Pressburger. You know Powell and Pressburger? A filmmaker, a yeah. The filmmakers, yeah. So they were the filmmaking duo. And Eric Pressburger tended to do the writing and Michael Powell tended to do the directing, but it was a little bit more fluid than that. Anyway, he wrote two novels in the early 60s, uh, one of which was called The Glass Pearls, and it was reissued by Faber a few months ago, I think late summer. We reviewed it. We gave it a nice review, and I've just mm. been reading it. It's astonishing, actually. It's a really, really fascinating book. It's about a former Nazi war criminal, a doctor at a former concentration camp who did unspeakable things, experimenting on humans, who's living undercover in London in the late 50s, early 60s, as an unassuming piano tuner, and about his former life catching up on him. And it's written in the sort of mode of a noirish thriller, very, very, very well paced. And it's particularly fascinating because Pressburger himself was a Jewish refugee. He was born in Hungary, he fled to Paris, he managed to get out of Paris and come to London before the war. But he writes from the point of view of one of his persecutors. And in fact, I won't give anything away, but actually the identity that this man steals tallies very much with Pressburger's own experience as a refugee in Paris in the 30s. So there's this sort of Victim persecutor identification thing going on, which is just, which is just psychologically fascinating. But anyway, it's a completely brilliant book, and yeah, so I massively it recommend extraordinary. it. And what was even more extraordinary is that it got absolutely ignored when it first came out, apart from a review in the TLS, which.
2: Oh, hello. We can't always say that. I'm, I'm afraid, but this time I'm glad we can.
3: We can except it. Panned it. We, oh, gave, oh, it an, okay. we gave it an absolute, an absolute hatchet job. Oh no, did we? And Pressburger never wrote another novel after that. He sank into its sort of semi-obscurity. And it was only in the kind of in the late 70s, early 80s, I think, that the Powell and Pressburger cinema uh, was. Sort of reinvigorated and people started remembering who he was but he, he stopped writing fiction after that I don't think it was because of the TLS review
2: I do hope not I do hope not because
3: you know, <laughs> he was a very very good writer he's a very interesting man so anyway I massively recommend it you don't just have to read it in your sick bed you can read it in all sorts of circumstances
2: mm.
3: it's a pacey and involving and psychologically taught thriller with some really interesting observations of the London of that period and yeah it's great
2: I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds like it could be a Powell and Pressburger film. I'm not by any means uh, an expert, but I've seen a couple and they've got these amazing atmosphere. They're very tense. You can't look away. It's exactly like that. It's like a sort of snowball. You sort of can't stop, but you think, like, it's probably not going to end well.
3: Exactly. And you're sort of, again, this goes with the films they make as well. You're, You're never quite sure how much you know as the reader or the viewer. And you're not quite sure how much that what's going on is paranoia Mm. or whether actually people are out to get him. And it's Mm. very, very cleverly done. So the sort of the author is always sort of one step ahead of the reader.
2: Right. What's it called? The glass pearls.
3: The glass pearls. um, Named after this jake that some people apparently did in Paris, which was there was a sort of a well known oyster bar and someone got some glass pearls and they slipped them underneath the oysters. And when they gave the oyster to their Usually, their female companion. They watched to see what would happen when she lifted up the oyster and found a pearl. Whether she slipped in her pocket, or whether she oh, gave, really? gave it to her suitor, or whether she offered to share it. So I don't know. Whether or swallowed happened, it by accident. Or <laughs> swallowed it by accident, which is probably, probably more likely. So I don't know whether this, uh, this is pure invention by Pressburg. In fact, if any listeners have any idea whether this has been performed before, I'd be very interested to know. But this is what happens in the book anyway.
2: Wow, that sounds completely fascinating. Yeah. For work, I've been rereading the whole of the Darkest is Rising oh. series by Susan Cooper for reasons which will be revealed next week. You can't tell me now. Okay, fine. <laughs> well, leave me and our listeners hanging. Do listen out next week because it's thrilling. It's so good. I mean, and I know it's not written for me at the age I am now, as it were, but I did read it at the right age, which the first time you read it, I guess, is what, about 12, maybe something like that?
3: Did you read them? No, no, I don't. I'm not familiar with them. I've heard of them. But I, I, no, I'm not. Can you tell us a little bit about, about them?
2: Um, it's a bit in the school of uh, Alan Garner in the sense of there's a, a sort of mythology, you know, there's kind of normal kids and ancient mythology kind of catches up with them and they live it alongside their normal modern lives that's that's quite a bad way of talking about it but i don't want to give too much away anyway it's completely thrilling i do recommend it but we'll talk about that next week but coming up on this week's show we ask what would the history of art look like if you took men out and a starry cast brings virginia Woolf and others to life on the stage of the metropolitan opera in new york
3: but first There's a new book out with a very simple and bold title, The Story of Art Without Men. It's by Katie Hessel, and it lives up to its title, which is essentially a rejoinder to Ernst Gombrich's monumental work, The Story of Art, which came out in 1950 and has had an enormous influence ever since. And you guessed it, included no women at all. The author and cultural historian Breeze Barrington has reviewed Hessel's book in this week's paper, and she joins us now. Hello, Breeze.
4: Hello, how are you?
3: Yes, I'm okay, thanks, not too bad. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: Your piece is particularly timely actually this week because Hessel Studies just won Waterstones Book of the Year, I noticed, a couple of days ago, which is probably a good indication of its popular appeal. Would you say that sounds about right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really exciting that a book like this has made the Waterstones Book of the Year because it's not a sort of I mean, it's called the story of art. You know, it's not a sort of a story in the in a traditional sense. And I expect we'll talk a bit about that later. But I think it's a real testament, not just to the book, but also to the huge impact that Katie Hessel has been having on this world, on this movement. You know, she's got a big following already from her Instagram and her podcast. And um, yeah, I think it's perhaps sort of both surprising and unsurprising, but definitely a good thing for the study of, of female artists.
3: In a way, it's a kind of culmination of her work, isn't it? Because I think it almost started life as a series of Instagram posts, didn't it? And then a podcast spun off from that and then the book came after. Is is that right?
4: Yeah, completely. So I think she started the Instagram in 2015 and every single day for several years, you know, it's incredibly hard work. She put up a post of a different female artist and then, yes, as you say, the podcast sort of took off from that and I think she was interviewing artists art historians and continuing that sort of work so this book is the culmination of some seven years of different kinds of research and I think you can really see in the book you know I don't mean this in a bad way um it might sound that way but you can really see it having come from that Instagram that it does sort of work as a sort of individual snapshots of artists lives
2: it's an interesting way and a very very obviously untraditional way to publish a book about the history of art, isn't it? To start it with Instagram. its I mean, it's like the opposite of Ernst Gombrich. But Instagram is such a visual world that I suppose that makes sense. You put up the art first and say, guess what? This is done by a woman.
4: Yeah, definitely. And, and actually, one of the great things about this book is it is very, very visual, which you know might sound a bit silly, but lots of, for all sorts of reasons, lots of books about art don't have so many pictures, and this is incredibly picture-heavy. And... Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is a slightly new way of approaching something like this. But it's very exciting. Yeah.
3: And it's it's a sweeping history, isn't it? It's not just about the present day. You begin your piece with this really lovely quote, which I'm just going to quickly read out. She would have done marvellous things if, as men do, she'd been able to study and learn to draw and work after living models. Um, And that quote came from quite a while ago. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
4: Yes. So it came from Vasari's Lives of the Artists. Vasari was essentially a very early version of a sort of art historian and he was around in the mid-16th century and that's when this book comes from so The Lives of the Artists is essentially I mean it's not in some ways it's not dissimilar I suppose to Katie Hussle's book in that it's individual biographies of artists that Vasari considered to be great and they're really from his own time the first edition was published in 1550 and there were no women in that edition, but then it was expanded in 1568 and it included four women, one of whom was Plauti Linelli, who this quote is about. Plauti Linnelli, I don't think, is particularly well known now, so I'll just say a little bit about her. So she was actually a Dominican nun, but she also was an artist and she was completely self-taught, so no formal training at all. She really learned from copying the works of her contemporaries like Bronzino and studying their techniques. Bronzino, incidentally, is also in Vasari's Lives of the Artist as one of of the greats of the time. So having not been self-taught, I suppose what Vasari is saying here, she's still included as one of the absolute greats. But what he's saying here is that she could have been, you know, an incredible artist. She would have done marvellous things if she could have studied like men. And I think that this is really illuminating, you know, women until 1890 women were not able to take part in life drawing classes they were mostly excluded from artistic academies. so you know most of the avenues of learning how to be an artist how to paint how to draw were you know they were essentially excluded from so this obviously made being an artist very very difficult you know it's hard to get through the door and then even if you're sort of through the door then You don't have the same opportunities, you know. Imagine not being able to study the human figure, you know, a nude figure, not being able to sort of properly learn about proportion. It obviously makes things very, very difficult. So I think you know what he's kind of pointing to here, and he says it about about all of the women that he includes in his book. What he's sort of saying here: all of the women had you know as much talent as the men did, but they didn't have the same opportunities. And you know, until eighteen, the eighteen nineties, like I said, this was still true, and You know, of course, it doesn't mean that they didn't find ways to paint these things. They didn't find ways to learn, but it's clearly so much harder. And I think, you know, what this is really pointing to here is the sense of being held back, you know, just by because of being a woman. And I think the sense of being held back has been has been really ongoing. You know, even when artistic education has become more accessible, women are still subjected to, you know, misogyny in the art world. And they I remember sort of the Lee Krasner exhibition that was on a couple of years ago in London or probably more than a couple of years ago now. I remember reading there that she said that people used to say that her work couldn't possibly have been by her because, you know, it was too good that it couldn't have been by a woman. It must have been by a man. And, you know, even contemporary artists now, people like Tracey Emin have you know, spoken about and campaigned about sexism, inequality in the art world. And indeed, you know, you only have to really look at national museums worldwide to see that women are much less represented than men. So I think, you know, all of this goes back to this Vasari quote of the unequal opportunities and it's still having an impact now.
3: In fact, I think Hessel, I read somewhere, started her Instagram theories because she went to an exhibition, a contemporary exhibition, I think it was, and realised there were absolutely no works at all by women. I think it was a, a huge exhibition. She said there was hundreds or even you know, low thousands of works, and that was what inspired her to do it. So, yeah, yeah. it's very much a kind of, it's an ongoing process. And in terms of the work still to be done, to what extent does Hessel confront that in this study? Because, you know, it is a history, but to what extent does she sort of, think about the ongoing moment
4: yeah it's an interesting point I mean um you know there's there is still obviously a huge amount to be done and her book is a big part of it she talks quite extensively in the introduction about the sort of problems that there still are and I suppose her her method of confronting it and the sort of things she says about trying to confront that is to do with more openness you know more spaces obviously given to women but also I think part of her part of her issue is that she feels the art world and the sort of study of art to be quite elitist and not particularly open. So I think the idea is to get more people interested in the first place and just to keep telling these stories and telling these stories. I mean, you know, it is a big problem that, I mean, if we look at museums, for example, take take maybe the National Gallery, I think something like 1% of their collection is made up of work by women. And that's not a particular criticism of the National Gallery, I mean, that's just, how the majority of these institutions are now and really you know how many how many national museums have had exhibitions about women artists you know obviously there was the national gallery exhibition of Artemisia Gentileschi in 2020 which is their only one if we think about other London galleries you know the Royal Academy has never had one the Angelica Kaufman that was scheduled uh, was cancelled during Covid and doesn't seem to be being rearranged I mean somewhere like the Tate Modern has been very good has had lots of exhibitions about women artists and that's obviously 20th and 21st century focused but I think you know it's quite a difficult thing in terms of museum collections it's a hard thing to shift right because you know especially at the moment with you know with sort of arts funding being what it is for galleries to try and redress that balance is the work of you know like decades probably more realistically centuries it's going to be very difficult and it also depends a lot on what comes up on the art market what galleries can afford it's not it's not an overnight solution it's going to be very very ongoing
2: We had um, last week, in fact, we were talking about the Rosa Bonheur exhibitions, which are in Paris and Fontainebleau. And that was wonderful. And we talked about her work and, you know, her life and how kind of quietly radical she was. But that was noteworthy. You know, it it was sort of it was unusual that that was a great big exhibition of a female artist that, you know, that's the big exhibition of the autumn. I can't remember if if we've done that before you know it's as you say it's still it's still unusual isn't it I'm interested in the, in the ambition of the book so it's got this very wide scope 600 years or so of art and it sort of introduces people to lots and lots of artists they're unfamiliar with and it also aims to redress the eurocentric bias and take in female artists from all around the world isn't it which is a kind of mammoth task
4: yeah I mean it's it's absolutely colossal um and I don't know that the book is completely successful in that, in the sort of redressing the Eurocentric bias. I mean, I think Katie Hassel, you know, she's very honest in the introduction about the book's limitations, that this is an ideal rather than perhaps a reality. Part of the reason I think that it is still very Eurocentric is that it is still very market focused and very sort of canon focused. And I mean, I hope this isn't a controversial thing to say, but, you know, I feel that, you know, the canon and, and the market are still primarily, although obviously not exclusively, but they do still primarily favour the works of, you know, if Europe and America. They are still, that is still their focus. But I think the fact that the book doesn't achieve this entirely says more about the task than about the ambition. You know, I think, what would it really mean? Um, I and mean, I talk about this a bit in the review, but, you know, if a book were to address this kind of bias, it would... Probably need to operate outside the canon, you know outside the market to some extent. And I guess that involves much bigger questions of rethinking what we mean when we talk about art, when we talk about artists. You know what? When we call something a work of art, we call someone an artist. what is what are the values we're attaching to that? What are the things that we mean by that? So you know what Katie Hassell is doing here is more adding to the canon. and, you know, there can be a good argument for that, too, but I guess it's still really some of the problems that she raises a bit unanswered. I mean, it might be worth thinking a bit about what, what the canon is. You know, who's it for? What's it for? Who makes it? And to some extent, is it still useful in the sort of world that we live now? Which, you know, is obviously a huge overturning of what we think we know and at the moment what we do know. But, and I don't really know what it would look like, but I suppose, you know, that's kind of the exciting bit, isn't it? That these are, these are kind of questions that are ripe for debate and it feels like a sort of a time of potential change. You know, ultimately, it's, I suppose it's not really Katie's responsibility to reinvent the wheel, but by, no. you know, by by bringing it up, she's she's doing something quite significant, I think. And, yeah, you were saying as well about the scope of the book. I mean, I think there is something like 300 women artists in this. And, you know, that in itself is a really quite an extraordinary feat. And they are, you know, lots of them. It may still be Eurocentric focus, but they are from all over the world.
3: Although the focus tends to be more on the, the kind of Towards the present day than the earlier periods, is that right?
4: That's true. I mean, I think, you know, it is very broad, but it is definitely skewed towards modern contemporary. I think, you know, this to some extent this is understandable because obviously, you know, not just women, there are just probably more artists in general working in later years. I'm sure if you did a study over a few books like this of of men, that would probably be the case too. But also, you know, with what I was saying about women's ability to learn how to paint and how to be artists and things like that. There were definitely going to be much fewer of them from those early periods. And I suppose that I, as a sort of specialist of the 16th and 17th centuries, am most likely to be someone to complain about that. I think that it is, it is quite stark. But you know, even though it's broad, it does cover a lot. Like I said, you know, 300 artists. You know, her only condition for being in the book really seems to be that the artist you know, identifies as female. And it's, you know, I think that's pretty marvellous. Like, who who can name 300 female artists? It's, you know, there's going to be material in there for for all sorts of, of people to be able to discover, no matter how much your sort of pre-existing knowledge is. But I suppose it is worth saying that because it is this big overview book, it's not, it's not going to be a book aimed at experts. It's aimed at being a kind of foundational beginning
3: for people, I think. And yet there will be people there that even experts didn't know very much about. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Do they feel like they're in conversation with each other? I mean, it, it, does it sort of feel like these sort of three hundred very discrete entries, or does Hessel find threads running through, or does she sort of let the reader do that work for themselves?
4: She certainly, she certainly does find threads. I mean, there are some sections which are sort of movement-led as well as just artist-led. I mean, they're still kind of about artists within those movements, and I think that you know, a kind of an attentive reader, if you like, could find a lot of crossovers that are you know that are perhaps intentional or not intended to be there, but. Part of the fact that it is such a visual book as well, I think, so it means that you can you can kind of see progressions, you can see through lines, you can see patterns. You know, I think it's been very beautifully constructed.
2: I'm interested with, that you say at one point, and you've said this already, that it's more a history of artists than of art, which is both a strength and a weakness. Can you kind of unpack that for us a little bit?
4: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that on the one hand, it's really wonderful for these women to be named, to have their stories told. You know, men have basically always had that to some extent and these women haven't had that opportunity before so it's really important that they're getting that recognition in this book but on the other hand it also means that it's kind of more artist-led than a story of art and women have created art in many ways across you know all of time and we don't necessarily always know what their names have been so things like I don't know production of textiles or something I guess comes to mind where you know people women have worked in groups and we don't necessarily know what they were So if the book were a little more sort of open to that type of art, then I think it would open more opportunities. It could also start a bit earlier, maybe. And, you know, it gives these sort of unnamed women a bit more of a look in as well. But I guess, you know, it's aiming to be a catalogue, I think. That's essentially what it is. And it's very successful at that.
2: Mm. And with the thing about groups of women making things, there's an issue about commerce, isn't there? Because you say across history and across cultures, women have been involved in artistic activities in ways that don't result in objects to be traded. So there, we're talking about money, aren't we? We're talking about the market.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, you know what I was sort of saying before about what it comes back to that question about what we think art is and what we think an artist is. Are we sort of defining art by something which people value financially you know there are lots of sort of artists over time i guess who have or haven't been successful and i don't know it's, it's a very difficult question but i do think you know the book is sort of favoring artists who are popular in that way and i i don't mean that necessarily as a criticism of of hessel i think it is very much how art seems to get defined i think it's quite a complicated
3: issue it sounds like she's very much done an enormous amount to kind of start a conversation probably by her own definition and there will be many more books of this nature looking at different areas to follow, one would hope.
4: Yeah, completely. And you know, there already are. I think it's important to say that, you know, this book isn't this book isn't happening in a sort of vacuum. It's yeah. one of lots of very significant contributions and and you know, academics, curators, interested parties, you know, people have been researching and writing on this stuff since the seventies and is having another surge now. But you know, there's a lot of existing books scholarship which has been very significant and which you know which this book is drawing on as much as anything else it's sort of it's one of many very good books about women artists at the moment
3: well hopefully there'll be many more to come as well absolutely it's really great talking to you Breeze. thanks so much for coming on the show
4: well thank you for asking me it's been great
2: To come on the show, Virginia Woolf live on stage at the Met in a world premiere.
3: And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free, wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode.
2: Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. So we're going to start with a novel, Mrs. Dalloway, from 1925, a great modernist classic which many years later inspires another novel, The Hours, by Michael Cunningham in 1998. The Hours was the original working title of Mrs. Dalloway, and it's a reworking of and an homage to Virginia Woolf's book and includes her as a principal character. Three years later, a film is made of The Hours, with a starry cast of Julianne Moore, Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, incidentally, is mentioned in the book. And 20 years after that, The Hours becomes an opera with a similarly starry cast, which had its world premiere last week at the Met in New York. Larry Wolfe went along to see it and has written about it for us, and we're very happy that he can talk to us today about it. Larry, many thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Lucy.
2: This is just to make our our listeners feel a bit um, wistful, as I said before. Do you want to tell us where you're joining us from today?
1: So I'm in Florence. I'm the director of New York University's Florence program, which is located at Villa La Pietra, which belonged to the late Sir Harold Acton. And he left NYU and I'm directing it for the moment.
2: I actually spent Christmas in Florence one year and it was absolutely wonderful. It was very, very beautiful in December when it was freezing and grey.
1: It's beautiful when it's cold. It's beautiful when it's warm. The nice thing about Christmas is that it's a little emptier and that's a nice thing.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're all feeling suitably jealous now and unhappy that we're not in Florence, but...
1: I wish you were here.
2: (laughs) So do we. So the hours, Larry, you were telling me about it. This was the big event of the season, wasn't it? Was there a sense of, of excitement there on opening night?
1: huge sense of excitement, big crowd, people who are usual opera goers, but people who I think who come from outside of the opera world as well, who were there. And I think people were immensely interested in this, right? Because just as you said, there's a famous novel, there's a famous movie, this is a a celebrated thing, The Hours, and the idea of it as an opera was very intriguing to people.
2: Mm hmm. And I must say, so we're going to talk about this world premiere, which, of course, you know, most of us haven't been able to go to. But on December the 10th, it's going to be live. I think it's a live broadcast in various cinemas, certainly lots in Britain and in America. So people will be able to to watch it sort of as performed.
1: Absolutely. And I highly recommend that. I think that it's a remarkable work of art and that people will be very moved by it.
2: Uh-huh. So I mentioned the superstar cast of the film. And as I said, this opera, one of the amazing things about it is that it, it also has a superstar cast, doesn't it? Can you tell us about them?
1: Yes, it does. The superstar among the superstars is Renee Fleming, who we thought had retired from the Met stage five years ago in Der Rosenkavalier. But this opera was written especially for her in the Clarissa role that is modelled on... Mrs. Dalloway, though she's displaced to New York in the 1990s, and she returned to the Met to carry this work in a really, you know, brilliant fashion. It was very exciting, her return, as well as the new work. And then alongside of her was the great Joyce Di Donato, a mezzo-soprano who's famous for Handel, who's famous for Rossini, and who here was singing in contemporary opera in the very unusual operatic role of Virginia Woolf, whom she embodied and impersonated on stage, whom she rendered, she rendered musical on the Met stage. And the third star of the production was Kelly O'Hara, who's a big Broadway star in New York. I don't know whether she's also a musical star in London.
2: Yeah, I think she's not as well known over here. The other two, you know, are instantly recognisable, but I think maybe she's more of a Broadway star as it is. So can you can you tell us about her?
1: very much a Broadway star and someone who carried the revivals of the classic Broadway musicals of the late 40s and the 50s. She was South Pacific. She was The King and I, she was The Pajama Game. So um, these classic roles from the Broadway stage are roles that she revived over the course of the, oh, the last 20 years already in New York. So she's a very big name for in the Broadway musical world, but she also has operatic training. It's not the first time she's sung from the Met stage, but it's the biggest and most significant role she's sung from the Met stage. And she performs in a 1950s persona, a 1949 to be precise. She's someone who's reading Mrs. Dalloway and having a mental breakdown while reading Mrs. Dalloway. So there were three big stars on the Met stage. And the fact that Kelly O'Hara comes from outside the traditional operatic world, I think also brought a lot of people from outside the opera world to this performance.
2: Mm, yes, yeah, I bet. And actually, I was looking, even the smaller roles that you were mentioning, they're played by also great singers, Denise Graves and Kathleen Kim. These, are, You know, they're not usually singing supporting roles, are
1: they? Nope, these are big stars in their own right. Denise Graves has not sung starring roles in a while, and she was in a supporting role here. She was a famous Met Carmen, a famous Met Dalila in the 1990s, very glamorous mezzo-soprano, here playing the role of Mrs. Dalloway's lover, or Clarissa's lover in New York in the 1990s. That is to say, we know that Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway is interested in women romantically, though she's actually married to a man. In the novel and the movie and the opera, Clarissa is actually living with a woman.
2: Mm-hmm. So there's these, there's these three main characters... And they're spaced out in time. The three main characters: so it's Virginia Woolf and Laura Brown, is it?
1: Laura Brown. Yeah. Exactly.
2: And and Clarissa, who's in the '90s. So they're all spaced out in time. They're all linked in the well, certainly in the books by a kind of stream of conscious narrative. They're playing out their own concerns, uh, their own dramas. On the face of it, it sounds like quite a difficult subject for an opera to convey. How does it begin? How does it introduce these narrative threads?
1: It introduces the narrative threads through the novel Mrs. Dalloway and the first line of the novel about Clarissa going out to buy the flowers herself. And Renee Fleming appears then as Clarissa Going out to buy the flowers herself for her party that she's giving in New York in the 1990s, not Mrs. Dalloway's party from London in the the 1920s. So introduced by an eight-part chorus that is actually reciting the novel, the first line of the novel. Mrs. Dalloway, which then brings on Renee Fleming in the starring role, um, embodying Mrs. Dalloway. It's a very tricky role to play because she's someone who I think Virginia Woolf has mixed feelings about when she writes about her. That is to say, the Party, the anxious party giver is not necessarily a figure we immediately sympathise with, mm. uh, either in fiction or in film or in opera. And I thought that the music actually was, you know, hugely interesting for making her an engaging figure.
2: Mm-hmm. So that it's not just sort of, well, why should we care about this woman who doesn't know what flowers to buy for her party? It makes it deeper than that.
1: I think it's a figure that's at risk of seeming brittle, at risk of seeming frivolous. Mm. And Virginia Woolf works a kind of magic around her in the fiction through her writing. And I thought that the music had that same effect of making her um, charismatic, even within um, her small concerns, the small concerns of her day in the life, which is how Virginia Woolf presents her to us.
2: Mm -hmm. And tell us about the mysterious countertenor figure who appears throughout.
1: There's a a voice who sings to Mrs. Dalloway from Under the Arch in Washington Square and who she finds particularly haunting. That is to say, who sings to Clarissa from Under the Arch in Washington Square. It's one of the ways of locating the story in Greenwich Village. And I mean, that's something that could happen. I live near Washington Square. You could hear someone singing Under the Arch strangely in an unusual local range on wow. uh, some given day in, <laughs> in, in New York City. There are all kinds of people in New York City as there are in yeah. London. Here he becomes a kind of haunting angelic figure. you know, the counter tenor voice is very, you know mysterious and powerful in its in its strange beauty. And what he's able to do is contribute some kind of connection among the different stories because he sings to each of the three women in their different time frames and connects them in the opera. He has a little bit of the sense of Angel of Death um, because it's an um, opera that's about the possibility of mental breakdown and the possibility of suicide.
2: Uh-huh. And that
1: plays a very important role in the opera, as it does in the, in the original novel.
2: Uh-huh. And I'm interested in this idea that, that they each have a different musical style or a motif, or a soundscape. So if I hear a particular bit of music, I might think, oh, well, that's Laura Brown in the 40s. Or is the music kind of its own style, and it's the staging that has to differentiate between them? Does that make sense?
1: Three different musical styles, just as you've suggested. The style from 1949 um, has a little bit of an element of swing, to it, um, I think I heard a saxophone um, in the 1949 piece, and you would um, recognize it as having elements of American swing in the way that it's composed. Virginia Woolf um, is singing, declaiming. This is Joyce DiDonato. Um, very often accompanied by piano, um, it has um, a little bit the effect of leader singing when she performs. And the role of Clarissa is created for Fleming in the styles that she does best, that is to say. Um, There are moments that evoke Mozart's Contessa. There are moments that evoke Strauss's Marceline. But there are pieces that we associate with Fleming's voice, and it was created very much for her.
2: Gosh, that's wonderful. So is it that you would like that it's a line of music that would make you think that's a Contessa or just a kind of the arrangement
1: behind it? I would say that um, both the arrangement and the musical line um, would make you think of the Contessa, but maybe above all the kind of sentiment and pathos that is um, invested in this role, both by the composer and by the diva
2: hmm Well, and as you say, it was it's reminiscent of the marshalline in the Rosen Cavalier, which which was the the role that she played when it looked as though she was saying goodbye, as you've written about this, got this great, there's an air of renunciation. I mean, there's an aria in which she more or less says goodbye as the Marshalin.
1: Absolutely. And you know, that was never announced formally as a farewell that performance by Fleming in May of 2017, but it was understood to be a farewell and it received you know, massive ovations from people who had mm. um, traveled from far and wide to see the farewell performance of a very beloved diva in New York. So this is, was, quite, uh, was quite unexpected, the return in a brand new role, though she's mm-hmm. someone who's always been very adventurous about taking on different roles and different styles over the course of her career.
2: And how about the staging then? Because that, again, seems like a difficult thing to stage if you've got three separate stories going on which are tangentially linked. Who directed it and did it work?
1: It's directed by Philem McDermott, and it works kind of brilliantly. And here the credit goes both to the director and to the composer. That is to say, Mm -hmm. what you want to imagine is... um, different spaces on the Met stage. We might be seeing just one of these stories at a time, but we frequently see all three of them um, taking place. Um, The 1940s, often in a raised space, that is to say, Kelly O'Hara in a bedroom that's at a higher level Than the other two, a Clarissa space to the left of Virginia Woolf Bloomsbury space to the right in the 1920s. The Met stage is huge, huge, high, and deep. And there's enough room to construct all three of these spaces on it simultaneously. But the genius of the composer here is that he's actually able to connect the three stories by linking the music so that sometimes. Um, with purpose, and sometimes seemingly accidentally, um, the characters are harmonising from within their separate stories. Um, But ultimately, they're allowed to connect with each other directly by the time you reach the finale of the opera. There's a great trio for the three divas who actually come together from their separate spaces at the centre of the Met stage.
3: Larry, you said the uh, libretto makes use of the... um famous first line of the novel, um, which is Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. I just wonder, does it draw throughout on the novel? And and if so, does that work? And how does it work?
1: Yes, it absolutely does draw throughout from the novel, particularly in the places where um, Laura Brown is reading from Mrs. Dalloway. But then again, in the places where um, Virginia Woolf is writing mrs dalloway the libretto actually does draw on the novel uses the words from the opera um there's a kind of amazing duet at the beginning of the second act which i reference in the review in which they both are harmonizing around one of the very famous passages from mrs dalloway um did it matter then, she asked herself, walking towards Bond Street, did it matter that she must inevitably cease completely? All this must go on without her. Did she resent it, or did it not become consoling to believe that death ended absolutely, but that somehow in the streets of London, on the ebb of flow of things, here, there, she survived? So it's famous Virginia Wolf Stream of Consciousness for Clarissa Dalloway, here created as a duet for soprano and mezzo-soprano, one of whom is writing the lines, the other of whom is reading the lines, both of whom are reflecting upon their mortality from different timeframes within the same musical piece. It was really very brilliant and very moving. When you think about it, suddenly it seems as if the entire
3: book was made for opera. <laughs> I mean, and in fact, I'm thinking about it the entire Virginia Woolf's uh, corpus. I mean, it, it's the, the stream of consciousness, of course, it must work beautifully when done well. I can completely see that.
1: stream of consciousness works really great on the operatic stage, which leaves a lot of opportunities for declamation and monologue. But as I say, the really cool thing here was to render it as a duet. Being written and being read at the same time. I mean, that's actually more than Virginia Woolf can supply on the page to compose the reader's reaction. Even as we are hearing the author's creation of the line. Mm.
2: If you said to the composer, "Yeah, you've done better than Virginia Woolf," I'm sure he'd say, "No, no, no, no." no, no. no, no, no we can't. <laughs> Not better. Different. I don't want
1: to say that he does better than Virginia no, Woolf. No, I want to no. say no. that. That opera and music here are able to actually enhance and complicate it in ways mm. that you could do on the written page. And that's as it should be, right? We know that operas have taken on great works of literature before. And that would only be a valuable thing if music has something to add.
2: It's another dimension, isn't it? As you say, it's a thing that you that you genuinely can't do. But also when it takes on great works of literature, like it doesn't always work, does it? Not all the Shakespeare operas work. Often because maybe because you're sort of listening to the words or there isn't that much room for thinking aloud. It's it's very impressive that this one does work, put it that way.
1: I'm going to tell you, I think that, say, the match between Verdi and Shakespeare in Macbeth, in Othello, in Falstaff is uh, okay. pretty amazing. <laughs> and,
2: uh, okay, but not all of the Shakespeare's. All all Verdi, yes. <laughs>
1: Not all not all of them, not all of them. but <laughs> I, I think that even in the case of Shakespeare, um there are sometimes something that music can the two geniuses together, right, can um, create something that transcends the work of either of them individually in a case like this, where opera works with with great literature. Mm. In this case, there's an, the intermediary work, the Cunningham novel, and perhaps the Daldry film that stand in between um, Virginia Woolf and Mrs. Dalloway on the one hand, and Kevin Putts and um, The Hours on the other hand.
2: Mm-hmm. You make the point that although there are important male characters in it, the focus is very much on the women. And that's still... It makes a nice change, doesn't it, in the world of opera, that they're the protagonists, that they're driving things, and we're hearing about what they think and feel. They're not just the kind of victims of whatever's going on.
1: Um, I think that's right, and I think it's also very true to the spirit of Virginia Woolf to think about this from the point of view of a um, a woman's sensibility, a woman's perspective, in this case three women, their perspectives and their sensibilities and their musical frameworks, um are different voices um the ways in which they sing the world are different and different from male perspectives um very very moving in the, in this fashion and it also of course picks up on der rosen cavalier which is um composed above all for three female voices
2: mm-hmm.
1: well one you've... Of them in trousers as a man
2: <laughs> yeah she's wearing trousers but yes i yeah. take your point well you've really brought it to life for us, Larry. Thank you so much for joining us today and have a lovely time in Florence. My pleasure. all we have time for this week our thanks go to breeze barrington and larry wolf
3: thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte party
2: we'll be back next week but for now from toby lishtig and from me goodbye